Hello, torchbearers, imagineers, and constructors. Welcome to another episode of Right Minded. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here with my co-builder on this podcast, Grant Faulkner. (laughs) Grant, uh, imagination is a topic we have covered quite a bit on the show. Obviously, it's an essential part of writing, but it's almost always a topic that's covered when we talk about fiction, because fiction is the realm of imagination, where memoir, by contrast, is the land supposedly of fact or reality. Uh, But of course, memoir is always very imaginative, and many of the same skill sets that novelists employ are also employed in memoir. It's just that in memoir, the story is true. Uh, But, and this is a big but, memoirs are also always imagined. They have to be. (laughs) You know, it's Mm -hmm. a reality, right, that is both acknowledged and not acknowledged that we recreate because we don't have a transcript of our lives. Uh, But today we're talking about going even farther into imagination and memoir, and that's into the realm of actually embodying someone else's point of view, which is what our guest today, Julie Metz, has done with her new memoir, Ava and Eve. And so I do want to state up front uh, before we get into it that the classes I teach in memoir acknowledge but don't teach how to do what Julie has done. And that the reason for that is because I do think it's a slippery slope. I like the memoirs I've read that do this, um, but it's really hard to do it well. And I've seen a lot of my students fail at doing it well. And I also worry a little bit about setting a precedent for what some people would call fictionalized memoir, because I have to stand firm that there isn't such a thing, um, you know, perhaps in theory, but certainly not in the world of book publishing. So um, I think that that's where I get a little bit iffy on the whole topic and why I'm super excited to talk about it today because I love experimental memoir. And um, I always have to say like it's a caveat because people don't often execute as well as they think they might. So I don't know. (laughs) Interesting. I haven't heard the term fictionalized memoir before, Brooke, but I, 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 I start when you mentioned that I wondered how that would be different from Autofiction, which is fiction that's drawn directly from life, um, sometimes so much so that it reads more like a memoir than like a novel, at least the autofiction novels I've read. And they're relatively trendy these days. But but I've read that many autofiction authors, they don't really think of their novels as autofiction, that that's a label that others have you know put on it. And sometimes they're not exactly happy about that. So you know, I'm sure it's just a matter of emphasis or intent behind the writing, you know, in terms of I don't know, fictionalized memoir versus autofiction. I don't get too concerned about these labels because I think most authors are mostly interested in telling their story and using whatever framework best allows that. But like you say, I mean, it's a category. It's really a category of publishing rather than writing. And I know that there is like like when you're presenting memoir, you're presenting it as truth or, or you know, somebody's attempt to get as close to truth or nonfiction in the world as possible. So I'm curious to hear more about your thoughts, uh, Brooke. Yeah, I'm sure the reason I care more about it is because I'm a publisher. And so I have to think about categories, right? And and fiction and memoir are two separate genres. And so there's a, a way in which I have to go and pitch the work that we have to our sales folks. And I can't say like, here's a genre that straddles both. It just doesn't right. work. There are buyers in each category. And so authors have come to me and said, this is a fictionalized memoir. 
and I say, okay, well, yeah, that is fiction. It's just fiction. And I think that's why the term autofiction has come about because it's fiction drawn from real life. But I also agree mm-hmm. that most fiction, unless it's, you know, fantasy or genre fiction, usually is drawn from real life. And we're an industry that is incessantly trying to categorize. I mean, I'm sure it gets very tiring (laughs) for (laughs) for authors. I can understand that. Um, But, you know, I guess I'm also a champion of, of memoir. And so for me, the slippery slope part is like, where are we potentially compromising the genre of memoir if we don't have any parameters on what and how we imagine into reality? Um, But of course, there's no governing board of memoir. Uh, or fiction for that matter, (laughs) determining what's allowed. So it's all just about like the subjectivity of the matter. And, and, and then that said, you know, I read Ava and Eve and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I really love this and it's really different. But I think what I liked about it was that it was very tightly contained to Julie's perspectives around relatives, you know, sort of direct descendants. And I don't think I would feel the same if she embodied the head of like a janitor or, you know, like, some random person in her life. Yeah. Yeah. It's all in the execution, as you say. And I'm very thankful there's no governing board of, of memoir or fiction. I, I, as much as I like to think of the governing board of memoir and fiction, <laughs> you know, kind of meeting regularly like the Supreme Court justices with robes <laughs> and grandeur and seriousness and all that. And hopefully somebody will write a story about that world someday. But I'd love to think more about the memoir versus fiction categories because these categories are blurring in a way I don't think they have in the past. And, you know, think about how they overlap or what degree they should overlap. But I know you, I, I know that said, you know, as you mentioned, you really enjoyed um, Julie's new memoir, Ava and Eve. So maybe you can share with our listeners uh, the ways in which it is and is not imagined. Why does Julie's imagining work where some others might fail? Yeah. So uh, to give readers context for the interview, we're about to listen to Ava and Eve is the story of Julie's mother and Julie's own story. And so it's a standard memoir in that sense that Julie does tell much of her story, but interwoven and driving a lot of the book is the story of her family who escaped Austria in the years of the Anschluss when Hitler was annexing Austria and ridding it of its Jewish population. So they got out in 1940 when her mother, Ava Singer, uh, was just 11 years old. And what Julie does throughout the memoir in order to make the era more real and to bring us closer to her family history is to imagine through their points of view, her grandfathers, her grandmothers, her mothers. Uh, And so in order to do that, of course, you know, it goes without saying she's taking liberties. She's imagining their thoughts and feelings, which is typically a quote unquote no no in in memoir, but again, as I said, people are doing it more. So breaking rules is also something I admire <laughs> when the rules are broken well. Yeah. And so uh, at the same time, Julie is reconstructing. You know, I really think that is what's happening. She's um, the setup is such that she's letting the reader know that she's imagining as well. And I think that's a really important thing. She uses these photographs. So she'll tell us as a way of queuing up the scenes, something like in a photo that does not exist you know, or in a photo that does exist and she'll describe the photo and then she'll kind of step into the photo. So it's a really cool literary technique. Uh, And I also think it's important to say that she did a tremendous amount of research. So the facts of what happened are accurate and that really matters. Um, And when they're not, she does let you know, you know, she'll sort of 
cue you in a way. And so she's occupying the points of view of her family members, but she's also there the whole way as sort of a guiding narrator. And so these are skills, obviously. And and that's why I want to say to any aspiring experimental memoirist out there to do reading in in the way that she kind of cues and tees up the reader to never lose sight of where they are. Hmm. Yeah, I can see how it would be confusing to wrap your mind around when it's okay and when it's not okay to do this. And I thought I thought it was interesting in our interview with her, even how she cast herself as an investigator and as an historian. You know, not necessarily as a as a, a fiction writer. You know, necessarily. You know, keyed in on imagining her characters, but that actually came you know later. But so much of our life is imagined in the end, especially the lives of our parents or how we imagine them. So I think. That's where the pull of the, the fictional really makes itself known as a force of, of truth in our lives. So I'm curious, Brooke, when do you think it's not okay for memoirists to get into the character's point of view? Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to state for the record that I don't want to claim to be a, the authority and that people are constantly pushing boundaries in their writing. And I do really like that. Um, you know, when it's not okay, as I said, is just to head jump into any old character. You know, in the memoirs, I've read that shift points of view in this way. Uh, it is the author jumping into characters' minds who she knows intimately. So it's usually parents, maybe grandparents. In Julia's case, she didn't know her maternal grandparents because they died before she was born, but she knew their circumstances and she knew that they had lived through the Anschluss. Uh, and so she did a ton of reading and she knew what kind of man her grandfather was, a Jew, a proud Austrian, a man who owned a printing shop. He was a decade plus older than his wife. He'd had children later in life. And so she's able to reconstruct all of this and to imagine what leaving Austria would have been like for a man such as him, you know, of his age, in his position, under such circumstances. And so she envisions how they got out when so many others didn't and imagines that this was because of his position, because of his charm, because of his ingenuity. And these are suppositions, right? But they're pieced together by things she knows to be true from pieces of her mother's story and from her research. And so in that way, it really is a blending. Yeah. I like your use of the word reconstruct because that's essentially what's happening here. You know, our minds naturally create stories, reconstructions of the past through the details we have available to us. And it reminds me of the psychological rule that we we create and recreate our memories throughout life. So they're not exact records of what happened. They change depending on other people's stories or photographs or our own feelings towards our memories. And the same thing is happening here, I think, in a way, is that she knew a story about her grandparents, but then she augmented that story with research, and then she imagined that story. And I think that latter part, the imagining of the story, is is a really crucial part of the endeavor and a crucial part of the truth. And, the, and that's why you can call it memoir, I think. And this reminds me a bit of The Woman Warrior, which has a lot of imagination imagined scenes and may have been the first memoir to blur the lines quite so much. So I'm curious if you have what you have to say about that, Brooke, and if you have any other recommendation for reads uh, that do this. Yeah, you know, the woman warrior is so much this way, very experimental and fanciful in some ways. 
Uh, most memoirs I've read that do this have done it really sparingly, like just a little moment, right? Like I imagine that my mother, blah, 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 right? Like there's this way of entering into a little scene. Linda Joy Myers, who I teach with, has some imagined scenes from her grandmother's point of view in her memoir, Song of the Plains. Julie mentioned one called The Hair with the Amber Eyes, which I haven't read, but now I want to because I now I feel curious about what other memoirs are out there that have really sunk their teeth into to this. Uh, and so, like I said, I've mostly seen writers just dip into points of view for a single scene to excavate a memory of something. Uh, but it's not common. But I also have to say it's something that my memoir students want to do. Mm. And so with that being said, you know, lots of people are really interested, I think, in this process of getting to know a family member, like I said, usually a parent or a grandparent through this process. And, and Julia speaks to that in our interview today. Um, but it's important to say that in Ava and Eve, I'd never lost sight that Julie was there directing the story. So I think perhaps that's its biggest feat. Um, you know, that the narrator is kind of two places at once holding a meta narration while also being in character with a point of view. Mm. Well, there's a lot to explore here. And uh, so we will get ready to explore it with Julie right after this very, very short break. Welcome back, everyone. I am so pleased to bring back on the show Julie Metz, who is the author of the newly released memoir, Eva and Eve, and the New York Times bestselling memoir, Perfection, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection. She has written on a wide range of topics of women's issues for publications, including the New York Times, Salon, Dame, Tablet, Catapult, and elsewhere. And her essays have appear appeared in multiple anthologies, and she lives with her family in the Hudson River Valley. And Julie and I, of course, work together at She Writes Press. Julie, welcome back. You're actually the first ever guest to do a second interview with us. So I want to encourage people to go back and listen to that first episode, which was all about cover design, which I refer to often, but I'm excited to have you you here today to talk about your new memoir. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah. And there's so much I want to ask you about. Uh, to start, I am most curious about the inspiration because there's the inspiration of these current times, you know, which had to have been a catalyst for this book in some ways. But there's also the inspiration, of course, that you lived and grew up with your mother's story and about her escaping Austria during the Anschluss. And so were there competing inspirations or was there something outweighing the other? Maybe you can give us a little context for the, the book itself. Well, when I started uh, working on this book, in fact, I didn't think I was going to write a book at all. I thought I was just doing some family research. <laughs> My mother passed away in 2006. And so this was really quite before all the current situation that we're dealing with. But what happened was that shortly after my mother died, I was going through her belongings um, and I found a keepsake book that had been hidden in a drawer. And I mean hidden. It was way, way in the back of the drawer where she kept her nightgowns. So she knew that nobody else was going into this drawer. And it had been there for, you know, 50 plus years. Not even my father had seen it. So I pulled the book out and realized very quickly that this was sort of a literally a deep, dark secret that she had held close to her for most of her life. 
um, the keepsake book was something like an autograph book that children got in Austria and Germany. I've seen lots of them since then. There are many, many that are now in archives. But when I first found it, I'd never seen it before, anything like it. And once I started investigating it, uh, I realized that the book itself had been holding really a lot of pain uh, from my mother's childhood that she never really expressed either to her children or even to her lifelong partner. Wait, sorry, if I can follow up just a little bit, because one of the things that struck me so much as I was reading was about the parallels, you know, between what was going on in these early years, you know, of, of cracking down on the on the Jews in Vienna. And so before we move into too much of a broader question, I just wanted to make sure that the our listeners have a sense of, you know, at what point did you start to realize the parallels? Because of course, you do write into contemporary times, and so many of the scenes do cover the Trump years. Right. So what happened really was, as I mentioned, I started working on it long before all this happened. But because the research took quite a bit of time, um, it edged into the time of, uh, of Trump arriving on the scene. And at that point, I could not help but notice the parallels, literally at the language level, the kind of language that uh, Trump used to describe immigrants and uh, was really almost identical right out of the Hitler playbook. Um, that might sound very extreme, but I could give you examples. I mean, it really was quite startling and, and so distressing because you always think, you know, sort of the motto after the Holocaust is never again. And then here we were again, hearing the same kind of language used by politicians to create division and hatred. And as one person that I spoke to on a plane trip when I was coming back from uh, one of my research trips, I sat next to this man who was Bosnian and we started chatting. And when I asked him about what the civil wars in uh, Serbia and Bosnia had been like during the 1990s, what he said was, the politicians made us hate each other. And I think when I started to see that, those parallels, was really when I started to feel the urgency of what I was doing. Wow. Julie, there's so many striking moments in your book and harrowing moments about what your mother survived and by extension, your grandparents and others who were lucky enough to survive. And I'm so curious about what it was like to do this research after your mother died and to have this intimacy with the story um, that didn't truly unfold, you know, with her before she died. And it just seems like it must've been such a poignant mix of emotions and obviously like a, a journey of emotions through from 2006 to, to the Trump years that you just spoke about. So can you, can you speak to the experience of how your mother was with you during the writing of the book? Well, I do uh, describe it often as something that feels a bit like a seance, and I'm not really that kind of a person. You know, I don't really, <laughs> that's not really what I'm like usual. But I would say that what was, I don't know that I could have had any of these conversations with my mother while she was still living. She was a very private person, especially about her childhood. Often her stories were kind of vague and very closed. There was sort of a beginning and an end, and you understood that you weren't going to ask too many more questions. But what started to happen was when I was going through her belongings, I discovered that she had kept 
all the paperwork, everything. She had the Nazi passports that her family had traveled on, all sorts of other documents, photographs that I'd never noticed. I don't know how this is possible, but I've never seen them. And then they would tumble out kind of just when I needed them. So there were times when I did feel that we were in a conversation and that she had left me these things for a reason. I began to feel more purposeful about that as time went on. And I can't really explain it except to say that at times it did feel, uh, you know, very spiritual in that way, that it was a very intimate conversation that we were having, um, she and I, that we could not have had while she was alive. I almost think it's more powerful when you say you're not that type of person and I know you and I know you're not that type of person. And so, you know, I think in some ways it, it's even that much more poignant. Um, so, so thank you for sharing that. Cause I hear people saying that about communicating with loved ones after they're dead in their memoirs. It's really powerful. Yeah. So this is your second memoir, uh, so different from your first, which was about losing your husband and then finding out after he died that he'd had a whole other secret life going on. Um, but there too, you were uncovering truths of things you didn't know. And so in that way, there are parallels. And I'm curious if you would compare and contrast some of the experiences that you had with these two memoirs that you've written, the first one being published about 13 years after the first, right? Uh, yeah, the first memoir was published in 2009. I will say that in my family, um, I'm known as very persistent. Um, <laughs> and I didn't know when I worked on my first book, I really felt that I had was becoming a kind of detective, that I was both the detective and I was also the subject of the inquiry, <laughs> that my life was really the, the investigation. Um, I think that I learned what I learned during that process is that kind of if you keep pushing on doors, eventually something will happen and that you kind of have to have faith that that will happen, even if you have no idea what you're doing at the beginning. And I found the same experience happened with Ava and Eve that I started investigating without really knowing what I was looking for or where to go. But the difference, I would say, with Ava and Eve is that I had to become a historian, and I didn't have any training in that. So in this case, I did look for help, um, and I received it, which was uh, contacting an institution in New York City called the Leo Beck Institute. My mother had given an interview there in 2004, two years before she died. I had that recording, but I'd never really followed up to find out anything about the institution itself. But after I found the Keepsake book, I contacted that organization and one of the historians kind of took me under his wing, wonderful guy named Michael Simonson. And uh, for the next, you know, five, six years, he helped me in investigate. He helped me with contacts and people to reach out to. He helped me find translation services, everything. So I really couldn't have done it alone as I wrote the first book. I really did need helpers. 
Well, it's interesting, Julie, that you mentioned the words in, that this was an investigation and that you had to become a historian because the, the there's a big role of imagination in this memoir as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious if or how you grappled with questions of how to imagine in the memoir and if you could talk a bit about the choice of you know, fully embodying family members' points of view in the genre, which is a, you know, a genre of quote, unquote, truth. Mm. Yes. So uh, at first, when I realized that I had a book, at first, I did think I might write it as a novel, because there were a lot of narrative holes, and I didn't know how to fill them. And even though I chased down every single lead, I still had holes in the narrative. And this was because there were these two years from 1938 to 1940, where my mother was a child living with her parents in Vienna under Nazi occupation, but there was nobody left alive in the family who could tell me anything about that time. My two uncles had left Vienna in the fall of 1938 and were by that time living in London. So there was nobody left, and I realized at a certain point that my options were to fictionalize the whole project, or maybe I, one day when I was sitting actually at a residency, you know, banging my head against the wall, I thought maybe there's another solution to this problem if I would allow myself to, as you put it, sort of enter into the characters themselves and take them over for some pages. And I decided to try it, perhaps because I was at a residency and it was very quiet and very tranquil and there was nobody there to judge me. <laughs> I thought, let me try this and see if I can make it work. And in a way, as I said earlier, you know, the experience of writing the book felt a bit at times like a seance. But when I decided to give myself permission to try this strategy, in a way, it helped me sort of come into some kind of communication with my grandparents. I never met either of them. I'd only heard about them from my mother and from my father. And I thought maybe this is a way that I can get to know them as people if I just will allow myself to enter their world. I'm so glad that you did. Um, I've, I've told you I was so taken with the story and and that element of it is obviously hugely experimental, but very effective uh, and of course, the book is really mostly about your mother, but so much more. Your mother was complex and beautiful and highly intelligent, uncompromising, but also clearly scarred by her experience. I mean, who wouldn't be? She lost so much. Um, and you talk about how she held grudges uh, against people you know, who wronged her, but certainly against Austria as a country. Um, and you two clash sometimes as mothers and daughters are wont to do, you know, and I, I really <laughs> liked the scenes that you shared that. And then also with your own daughter, right, who you're clashing with at times. So I was curious as I was reading about the legacy that we carry, you know, from our parents and into our own parenting. And I'm, I just was wondering if you could comment about what you learned about your own legacy in writing this book. Yes, I would say that, uh, you know, a theme is that there's several generations covered in this book um, of kind of uh, tough-ass women, I guess, <laughs> is the only way to put it. Um, and my mom was definitely, you know, she was a survivor. And there are photographs of her, though, when she was a child with two older brothers, 
And I think you can see that toughness even there where she, you know, she had to deal with those older brothers and become the boss of the home, which I think she was. (laughs) And then, you know, also as she was growing up in a new country, learning a new language, she also was kind of an early career woman, like a, a working mom at a time when this was still really quite unusual. When I was a kid in school, I didn't know a lot of working moms. Um, they were kind of rare in my class. So in a way, if you've ever watched the series Mad Men, my mom was a bit like Peggy Olson, kind of <laughs> you know, struggling in a very male-dominated environment to work. So that kind of toughness really served her well. Then, you know, in a way, I think this was a quality that made our mother-daughter experience very difficult because we were similar. But then it has served me in my own life. And I see it also in my in my child. I think, you know, they got some of that too. And so sometimes that creates conflict, but then that can also be a legacy that you can own over time. <laughs> and see the strengths of that. Well, Julie, in closing, I wanted to loop back to my earlier theme on, on embodying, you know, the points of view of others in your memoir. Uh, Brooke and I were talking a lot about this before you came on the show and curious for our listeners who might want to try this technique. Um, if you have any advice for them, or if there are any books that you read that inspired you um, about how to, you know, embody other people in the memoir and write from their point of view and how that's different than fiction, I guess, in the end. What I'll say is that what inspired me was reading novels. Hmm. So there may be memoirs that employ this technique. Um, It's not that I've read every single one, but what really gave me courage was to read novels. And uh, in fact, what I remember reading a lot during that time was rereading E.M. Forster, who really does such an amazing job of moving from one character to another in a very subtle way and just uh, gestures of dialogue and really beautiful but succinct description of characters and situations that I found especially inspiring to try this. What allowed me to sort of try that technique was that I had these photographs and that was the device that I decided to use was to see the photographs themselves as kind of a window into a character and to sort of step through into the photograph. But for other people who are trying that, I would say that a memoir like The Hair with Amber Eyes, he does a wonderful job of this too. He also used objects, which were that collection of um, netsuke that had been passed down in his family. And that kind of gave him the anchor to move from one character's point of view into another. So I would say that in some ways for a writer trying an experimental technique, it can help to have an anchor of an object that is sort of the focus of the, of the passage that might help enter into that character. Well, thank you, Julie. I know I 
told you, I just thought Eva and Eve is really beautifully rendered and has stayed with me, uh, you know, all these weeks after reading it. So I, I hope it continues to reach people and that our listeners will scoop it up and take a look because it's powerful for all of it. But I think this experimental space that you're in um, is something I'm just seeing more and more of in memoir. So, so thank you for doing it so well. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you. We will be right back with today's book trend. Okay, Grant, we have a very 21st century book trend today. We're talking about NFTs or non-fungible tokens. Probably our listeners have heard of these, but they're still a new concept and that said, they're gaining traction in the world of books, ebooks specifically. So it's time to unpack how they work. And I don't know, maybe I'm ready to start buying some, I think. Well, I'm still in the camp of, of I don't quite understand what they are, and I kind of hope they'll go away. Um, yet I keep wondering, if, like you, if they're harbingers of, of some bold new future that I just don't quite understand yet. So for our listeners, and I got to say, listeners, I've read several articles on NFTs, and I can't say that I completely understand them. So I'm going to attempt to define what an NFT is for you. So in short, it's a unique digital certificate, which is stored on a blockchain and provides certain ownership rights to a particular assets. So I know everyone understood that. And then non-fungible means that each one is unique and of different value as opposed to something like dollars or Bitcoin, which are fungible because each dollar or Bitcoin is identical and interchangeable. So these NFT assets are digital, getting down to a way to uh, really imagine them. They're mostly works of art, but also eBooks. And what's meaningful about NFTs is that it's really a movement to establish ownership rights in the digital space where stuff is just, you know, right now shared back and forth or replicated with no regard to ownership. So I'm still wondering how much I care about ownership or this type of ownership as long as I get to read the book or look at the art. Well, that's a good question. And I think it's why creators are the ones who are driving this. You know, I think they're also concerned about the value of the asset, right? So Mm -hmm. if the asset is the ebook or it's a packaged kind of thing, you know, where it's like an ebook and a video and an animated cover, it's, it's certainly a way to make money, but it's also a way for things to appreciate. And I think that's the number one thing that people need to understand. It's like an ebook is not only almost valueless in the sense that it's like $4.99 and then you delete it. It has almost no value at all in terms of thinking about it, its future value or its resale value. So I think that's really what people are trying to do here. Um, Being able to like treat an e-asset as a single thing that you own so that a reader or in some cases a collector could eventually try to resell it um, and that would be worth something in the future. That's my whole thing about this because I think this is why the younger generations are so interested in this is because there's very little that young people I think can really hope to own um, that will appreciate in the online space and they're thinking about it as a whole class of people that has fewer assets than their uh, you know the older generation so I was looking to see you know like these box sets that you can buy now for $150 for instance and then maybe in 2060 they would be worth 10 times more what you paid for it 
Yeah, Brooke, it, it does seem very generational to me, and and it seems to be mostly for collectors, I guess, at least my understanding of it. Um, but this is also where it kind of eludes me because I'm not a collector of first editions, but I. At the same time, I understand the thrill of owning a first edition copy of Moby Dick or something like that. But I don't quite get the thrill of owning a digital original of a book. So I'm curious if you could tell me more, Brooke, because you're enlightening me already. <laughs> is it catching on enough in the world of book publishing that we're going to see this as a, you know, as big as it is in the world of digital art? Yeah, I'm not sure. A lot of the NFTs I see are um, like they can't compare to the real thing. But like I said, I'm in my mid 40s and I just do think this really is a younger generation thing. They're growing up in the digital space and they th see things differently. Um, and I think that they're appreciating uh, this as an investment space. So we'll see. I, I'm probably I'm sure both of us are going to look back from, you know, 40 years from now and wish we got in at the ground level. <laughs> well, I still haven't sold the basement full of of my mother's antiques on eBay. So, so I'm afraid I'm not a prime person to cash in on internet opportunities. But um, you mentioned that you might buy something. So what would that be? Well, I'll share that, you know, in trying to find NFTs online, uh, the thing that I found was that they were expensive. <laughs> you mm. know, they're like $150 to $250. I, I saw a cool site, booksgosocial.com to help me understand what was on offer. So, you know, they're package deals. Like it's a zipped file with special interviews with the author, or it might have a slideshow of the history of the book, um, or you can get a special animated cover. So you can imagine if I buy this asset from this guy who turns out to be the next Stephen King, and these are truly limited editions that basically I would strike it rich. So I like the concept, but I just am not quite sure I'm ready to lay down, um, you know, 150 to 250 right now for the privilege. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that, that example unto itself helps me understand the value and the what they are. My worry is that it also seems like we're setting up a kind of country club experience for books where the wealthy get privileged access. Um, and I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I'm, you know, always up for ways for authors to monetize their works because God knows they <laughs> have been getting shafted since the beginning of time. So I'll definitely go check out booksgosocial.com and uh, to understand this all better and also, you know, yeah, see what my options are. <laughs> yeah. And hey, listeners, if you have any cool stories about NFTs, let us know. I'm genuinely interested. I mean, it, it's been around and it's not going anywhere. So I think it's a space to watch. And that's the whole point of having these trends in the first place. So thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Drop us a rating if you have a chance. Share the fact that we exist with a friend. We appreciate that. And we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>